Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. There is, of course, many things that Messianic believers and Orthodox Judaism does not agree with. That's no surprise. Let me share with you one of them. Now, for those who know the truth concerning who the Messiah is, we understand that there is great benefit in recognizing Messiah now, during our lifetime. And the Bible does something. The Bible gives us prophecy in order that we can recognize Messiah when he comes the first time, which he's already done. We can look at what took place, what he said, what he did, and look at Scripture and be assured this is the Messiah. Judaism takes a very different view. Judaism says you only proclaim who the Messiah is, meaning there is only faith in him after, for the most part, he completes all what Messiah is supposed to do. When we look at Jewish law in regard to Messiah, the things that Messiah has to do in order to be received and proclaim as the Messiah of Israel, the Savior, are all things that he does when he comes back the second time. But what about those things that Messiah was prophesied to do during his first coming? By and large, Judaism ignores that or attributes those things to Israel, to the Jewish people, rather than seeing them as messianic. Now, if I were to ask you, in the book of Isaiah, what is the greatest messianic prophecy? It's probably the one that we're going to do, not in this session, but in the next session. I'm talking about Isaiah chapter 53. But I would share with you, from my perspective, even though Isaiah 53 is a wonderful messianic prophecy that truly pinpoints the work of Messiah when he came the first time and the implications of that work, a greater messianic prophecy for recognizing Yeshua and understanding what Messiah brings about is what we're going to study in this session. So take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Isaiah and chapter 52. The book of Isaiah and chapter 52. Now, we began this chapter last week, doing the first six verses. And now, with intent, I did not do more than the first six verses because this second half, from verse 7 until the end of this chapter, we see wonderful prophecy that reveals to us much about 
the person of Messiah, the work of Messiah, and the implications, the outcomes, the results of what Messiah will bring about when he completes his work. So as I said, be wise, take out your Bible, and follow along. It is a good thing to look at the scripture, to make sure that the teacher is being accurate, that's truly saying what the Word of God does. And we're going to pay great attention to the text in the original language so that we can understand with clarity, understand with assurance what it is that Isaiah reveals in these verses concerning Yeshua, Israel's Messiah. Let's begin in verse 7. Verse 7 is a, a prophecy concerning one who proclaims this salvation, who pinpoints accurately the implications of Messiah's work, what Messiah is all about. And notice what it says, and of course this verse is also found in the book of Acts in regard to the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip who went to him and who illuminated for him this passage of scripture. Look with me to verse 7. Isaiah 52 and verse 7. It says, how pleasant. Some Bibles will say, how beautiful. And really, we're talking about both of those things. Something that is truly beautiful and also something that will bring great blessing into our life. It will be pleasant for us. So it is beautiful from a standpoint of what God's plan is, and it's also a plan that brings great pleasure, joy, that which is pleasant to us. We have a wonderful God. Once again, verse 7, How pleasant upon the mountains. Mountains have to do with authority, government. And we're seeing that Messiah is over this earthly authority. He is going to bring his own government, a government that will have no end, that will continue forever and ever, a government of, of righteousness, of justice for all. So we read in verse 7, How pleasant upon the mountains the feet of an evangelist. Now, the word here is mevaser. Mevaser comes from the Hebrew word levaser, which means to proclaim good news, but not just any good news, specifically good news about redemption, the redemption that is kingdom-related. So how pleasant, how beautiful are the feet of the one who proclaims this good news and he does so upon the mountains meaning with great authority one that is greater than all the earthly governments there is a change coming because of this good news now we have the term here mevaser an evangelist and then it clarifies the work of an evangelist what is he proclaiming? Well, we have the term Mashmia Shalom. 
Mashmia, it comes from the word lishmoa, to hear. And remember, this word demands a response. It's not enough that you just hear it. That would be the word lakshiv. But this is the word lishmoa, which means to hear. And with what you hear is an expected response. And if you respond, what's the outcome? Well, this word mashmia is in the Hebrew hithil, which means the causative uh, stem of the Hebrew verb. So it means that he's causing you to hear. And what is that? Peace. Now, peace is the fulfillment of God's will. In other words, this good news, this evangelist, is saying how God's purposes, his plan, his will is going to be fulfilled. He has a message that is going to bring about shalom, the purposes of God being completed. They all have to do with the work of Messiah. And then, in order for us to understand shalom better, this one who causes to be heard peace, we have the term mevaser, the same word for an evangelist, an evangelist of what? Good. Now, we all know that the gospel means good news. It comes from the word levaser, or the noun psora, for good news, the gospel. But we have this one who is an evangelist. He's proclaiming, causing to be heard the will of God. And then he proclaims. And what does he proclaim? The Hebrew word tov, which is good. And again, it speaks to the will of God. Now, we have to see this in two ways. First of all, if we look at the term shalom in its simple understanding, peace, we need to ask ourselves what it is that brings peace. I want peace in my life, that tranquility, that calmness, being at ease, not full of stress, anxiety, worry, care. Don't want that. So how do I find that, that peace? that same peace that Paul spoke of, that peace that passes all understanding, that contentment. Well, he tells us, Mevaser Tov. He proclaims, he evangelizes good. What does that mean? Good, this word Tov. What should come into our mind? The will of God. So it's only God's will that gives peace. If you're not walking in God's will, you're not going to have that peace. It's not something that we are naturally because I accept Messiah, I have that peace now. It doesn't work that way. It's when you accept Messiah and you respond to his instructions and you carry them out regardless of the response of the world, regardless of the persecution, the suffering, the, the antagonism that the world's going to have towards you you'll still have that peace because you'll be, and here's the key, you will be in God's will. So understand the relationship between the gospel and being in the will of God. Then he says, once more, the same phrase, mashmia. He causes to be heard shalom, peace, but here it's the phrase, to cause to be heard, and we have the word Yeshua. So here's the, the connection. We have peace through the will of God, and it's the will of God ultimately to bring about for those 
who respond to the gospel, this Yeshua, this salvation. Now, salvation, we hear that term so much, I think sometimes we lose sight of what it's speaking of. How would you define salvation? I asked before doing this teaching, I asked some people here in Israel, and they saw salvation as forgiveness of sin. That's true, wonderful, but it's more than just forgiveness. Some saw it as the, the ticket into the kingdom of God, another great answer and true. But if we want to understand salvation properly, salvation is when the will of God is fulfilled. I have that, that peace. There is the goodness of God that I'm experiencing. And all of this points to something that God wants us to have. When, when Messiah, he was sent into this world to save us, we can understand it this way. The simplest way, to give us victory. That you and I live a victorious life. That we don't experience defeat because of sinfulness. But we experience victory. We overcome the things of this world. So he's causing us to hear how we can have victory. And here again, everyone agrees. What we're studying is messianic prophecy. Now move on to the last part of verse 7. Omer litzion, malach elohayach, which means, say to Zion. Now I've shared Zion or Zion in Hebrew, speaks about the excellency of God. What does that mean, the excellency of God? It's a kingdom term. The word Zion for Zion in English speaks to the excellency of God and its kingdom related. You will not know in the fullness the excellent things of God in this world. They just don't fit in. We can have a foretaste. We can have that hope. But we won't know them in the fullness until the kingdom of God. So it says, say to Zion, which means say to those who have a kingdom hope, those who have a kingdom call, those who have a kingdom invitation. Say to those of Zion, what? Your God reigns. Now, it's actually in the past tense, your God has reigned. Now, we have to understand it based upon Hebrew. Sometimes the past tense is used for a reason. And that is, it speaks of something as though it's already been accomplished. So even though we're waiting for ultimately that fulfillment, it is assured. Our God has reigned. He is reigning and he will reign. So it's speaking of this and giving the reader a sense of assurance. It's going to happen. Now, we haven't witnessed it, but we should believe it. And here's the key. We should base our life now, how we live, the decisions we make, upon the fact that our God reigns. It's not that maybe he will, maybe he won't. God is on the throne. And ultimately, he's bringing that throne from the heavens. He's going to bring it to earth. Now look at verse, verse 8. Here he talks about those who are watchers. But what's interesting, this word for watching, 
can also have a degree of waiting, waiting with anticipation. But there's also within this term for watching, this waiting, this expecting, it is someone who has assurance that what he's watching for is going to happen. And that's why it says, look at verse 8, it says, Kol Sofayach, which means the voice of your watchers, those who expect. It says, they have lifted up their voice together and they will shout for joy. Why? What is this shouting for joy? What have they been watching for? And here's the answer. They're waiting for the, the outcome of redemption. Now, we know something as believers. We know that, that God has done the work of redemption. There is a specific date related to the redemptive work of God. We're given that date in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. I'm speaking about Passover. This is when God redeemed the people through the blood of the Lamb. Hear that. There is a connection in the Old Testament. Redemption, this coming out of bondage in Egypt, being the purchased possession of God. That's what redemption is all about. This takes place because of the blood of the Lamb. That is a Torah truth. That is, is undeniable. It is indisputable. Redemption comes through the blood of the Lamb. Now, that date is the 14th day of the month of Aviv or Nisan. Same time, same date, just two different names. A Torah name and then later on, we use a, a term that is more, more broad for the term Nisan, for that month, that spring month, known in the Bible as Aviv, or at least in the Torah as Aviv. Now we know something else. We know that Messiah, he was crucified. When? Well, we know. The scripture tells us, look at the gospel. The day that he was crucified, the gospels call preparation day. And preparation day is another term for Pesach, that is Passover. It was the 14th day of this month, Aviv or Nisan. It was called Passover or Preparation Day. Why? Because that's when you, you prepared the Passover, that Passover lamb, in order to be eaten, to be partaken of on the first day of unleavened bread, which is the next day, the 15th day, but it begins at sundown. So you prepare that lamb, the Passover lamb, preparation day, you prepare the Passover lamb, and then after sundown, you partake of it. So that 14th day, the day that Messiah went to that tree that he was crucified, is Passover. And therefore, notice what it says. There's this expectation. He says, lift up your voice, these watchmen, these who are expecting something to take place, lift up your voice together, shout for joy. Why? What are they seeing? Well, here's the implication, the outcome, the result of redemption. It says, Ki ein be ein ir u. 
What does that mean? I, meaning that part of, of your vision, remember we're speaking about, about those who are watching, those who have expectation. It says, I with I. We would translate it every eye. That's the promise that he's making. Every eye will see. They would say in the plural, all the eyes, they will see. Beshuv Hashem Tzion, which means when returns the Lord, where? To Zion. So we have that expectation. Now this is what's so significant. Many times we see both in the Hebrew Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, and also the New Testament, God. And if you want to criticize God, I don't think it's a very wise thing to do. I think it's a very foolish thing to do. In fact, I think it's a very dangerous thing to do. But, but God, many times, does not simply say things directly. He hints. He describes. Here again, if you want to criticize God for doing that, you go ahead. I wouldn't do it. But God has that tendency to describe things, to give hints, in order that we have to, to think and pray and seek His revelation. What am I talking about? Well, we've said this is a messianic prophecy. But up until this time, we haven't said anything about the Messiah when we look at this scripture. Because what we see here, if you go back, we see that it says, every eye shall see the return of who? Not Yeshua. But it says, the Lord to Zion. But this is Messianic prophecy. We'll see that undeniably in a moment. So what's the conclusion of that? Well, we either have scripture that, that is in conflict with each other. That doesn't happen. Here's the solution. This speaks about the divinity of Yeshua. There are numerous, hear this, there are numerous biblical passages that speak about things that Messiah is going to do, but in the scripture it says, the Lord that sacred name, yud Hey vav Hey, that sacred name is used. And what's the conclusion? Well, the writer's confused. There's a conflict. One believes it's Messiah. The other one believes it's God. The simple solution is Messiah is God. Now, I believe, and I need to share this from time to time because we get so many questions. Do I believe in the Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These three equaling one, only one God, but, but one equaling three and three equaling one. Do I believe that? Yes, I do. We have that in our statement of faith, and I do say it frequently. Why people don't think that I would believe that, I don't know. But I have always, always believed that since coming to faith. So when it says the Lord's going to return to Zion, our God is going to reign there. It says your God reigns there, but he's our God. It's speaking about Messiah is going to reign. He's going to be up on that throne. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But all of this is speaking to his divinity. Now let's look at the next verse, verse 9. 
because God is ruling, because God has returned to Zion, and here again, once you're going to do that, Zion is a kingdom word. When the kingdom is established, who establishes the kingdom? Messiah does. He comes, but he is our God, and he is going to reign. Verse 9, here's what the response should be. It says here, burst forth and also shout burst forth and shout together who O ruins of jerusalem now ruins of jerusalem when you hear that term what comes into your mind only one thing and that is exile this is when jerusalem was destroyed it brought about the exile of our people but now we have a good news that exile is going to be brought to an end and what's going to begin redemption the outcome of redemption which is the kingdom and redemption positions god's people to worship him this is about the kingdom it's worship and therefore he says and this is speaking of worship break forth shout for joy all together oh oh broken uh, places of jerusalem why what brings about this change? Well, notice the, the next part of verse 9. Ki nicham Hashem amo, which means, for the Lord has comforted his people. Now, how has he done that? This word, nicham, in this, this verse, it's where we get the word menachem, which means the one who comforts or the term Nahum, which is also related to a comforter, or Menacha, which is also related to comfort. All these words appear in the Hebrew Bible. And what it's speaking about here, Nachama is another one. What it's speaking about, very simply, is that same, remember where Messiah went to when he began his, his, his ministry in this world, that three and three and a half years of, of service? He left Nazareth, Nazareth, and he went to a place that was erected for him in anticipation, knowing that the messianic time was at hand. People built a city where Isaiah, and we talked about this when we were in Isaiah, chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 end of chapter 8 beginning of chapter 9 where it speaks about on the way to the sea between the border of naphtali and zivulon these two allotments of land this inheritance of these two tribes between them the border of them on the sea this is where the light of messiah is going to begin and therefore the people read that and they built a city, a small city, a village for Messiah. This is indisputable. This happened. And they called that village because of that important term, Nachama or Nahum, they called that village by that term. Kafar meaning village, Kafar Nahum, you might hear it as Capernaum. He went there. So this word is so important. Isaiah uses it frequently. We've spoken about it frequently in our study of Isaiah's prophecy. It's a word of comfort, which, why is it comfort? Because what God does, it brings about a restoration of his purposes 
for his people. That's why it says here, for the Lord has comforted his people. He's done the work in order that the purpose, the plan of God can be restored back to his people. And what brings it about? Well, look at the end of verse 9. Ga'al Yerushalayim. He has redeemed Jerusalem. This is why Messiah, he left the Galilee and he knew that he had to do the work of redemption in that city, Jerusalem. So all of this, Yeshua fulfills. He's the one that redeemed his people, that brought comfort. That's why the place that he began his earthly ministry, Kafar Nahum. And it's to bring the outcome of redemption to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is synonymous with a kingdom. That's why King David moved the capital from Hebron, Hebron to Jerusalem because it's kind of a messianic transition. We see that in David's action and we're going to see it in its fullness when Messiah returns to Jerusalem in the last days. And this is what it's speaking about when it says, every eye shall see the return of the Lord to Zion. Now look at verse verse 10. We have spoken in the previous chapters about the word Zoroah. Now, Zoroah, a little bit of a review if you don't remember. The word Zoroah, it comes from a root which means a seed or an offspring. It can be masculine or feminine. So it can speak of a female descendant, which we would call a daughter, or a male descendant, which is a son. So Zeroah can also speak of the arm. Many times that term is called the arm of the Lord, but it's a rich term. Now, it's not from the elbow down. That's called Yad in Hebrew. It's from the elbow up, the upper portion, what's known as Elyon. And therefore, this is the sacrificial purpose. Now, what's interesting is this. Only in Hebrew can you have one word that speaks about sacrifice, that speaks about son, speaks about an extension of one, meaning a father's extension, his son. And that's what's even more spectacular, is that this word Zeroah also is what we call on the Passover plate. We put a shank bone to remember the Passover lamb. We don't have a lamb today because there's no temple when we have Passover, no altar, so we don't have lamb. But we put a shank bone, a lamb bone, in order to be reminded of the Passover lamb, and we call that Zeroah, referring to this messianic hope of a descendant, an offspring of God, who would be the offspring, male offspring, that brings about a Passover experience. And what's a Passover experience? Redemption. So that's why we see at the end of verse, verse 9 that he redeemed, the Redeemer. Then you go to verse 10, it says, The Lord kasaf. This is to uncover. It's a word of revealing. The Lord reveals his holy, most Bible will say arm, but we could say his holy sacrifice, his holy son, such a rich word. And 
the translations don't do it justice as all. So when, and this is a messianic term, Zeroah is a messianic term referring to the Redeemer, this Son of the Lord that's going to do the work of redemption. And it says here, the Lord is going to uncover, reveal His holy Son, His holy sacrifice, His holy arm, as some would say before the eyes of all nations. Now, the rabbis struggle. Why all nations? Why not Israel? Because Messiah's purpose goes beyond just the children of Israel. Always this was the case. We need to remember, God chose Avraham, a Gentile. Why? There were no Jews. He chose Abraham. And Abraham, because of faith in the word of God, that changed his identity. That faith in the Word of God, in the promises of God, entering into a covenant with God, this is what brought about him being known as the first Jew. And we see that, that Abraham is the model of this. So when we look at the scripture, it talks about before the eyes of all the nations, the word goyim, because God's purpose of redemption through Yeshua is to bring blessing, and that blessing is redemption, a kingdom blessing for all the families of the earth. And then we see in the last part of verse 10, ve ra'u ko apse aretz, which means all the ends of the earth, meaning this is a broad invitation. No one has to be left out. Everyone's invited. All the ends of the earth, they will see the salvation of our God. Now, who is the instrument of salvation of our God, the salvation of our God? Ha-Zeroah, meaning that arm, that, that son of God, this sacrifice that this son of God was, was ordered to make. And praise God, he made that sacrifice. He went to that cross, and when did he do it? on Passover. All of this is not by chance. All of this is God's wonderful purpose that Isaiah is revealing. Now let's look at verse 11. It says here, suru, suru, which means basically turn aside. He says it twice. Turn aside, turn aside, and then go forth. What it means is you've got to make a change. The way that you're going right now isn't the proper way. Based upon what we've spoken of thus far, this demands a change in the direction of your life. So he says, turn aside, turn aside, go forth from there, meaning where you, you were. And then it says, that which is unclean, do not touch. Now, this term tame for unclean, it, it is something that renders whatever is unclean, God doesn't bless. That's why God says in basic, we'll put it into simple English, get away from there. I can't bless you if you're there. I am not going to, to redeem you there. You need to turn aside. You need to make a change in your life. And this turning aside is a hint, a hint towards repentance. He says, go forth from, from her midst. And do what? 
purify yourself. And who's he talking to? Well, the leaders of Israel, he says, the ones who carry the, the instruments, the vessels of the Lord. This is the priests and the Levites. They're supposed to demonstrate. They're supposed to be the example. And therefore, it goes from God and here the prophecy of God through the prophet of the Lord to the leaders of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and then to the people. Look at verse, verse 12. Something different. It says, Ki lo ve chipazon. Now, chipazon, very, very well-known word. It means to do something in haste, meaning not carelessly, but hurriedly. It means to do something quickly. Now, when the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they did so just that way. But now this is to tell us that redemption that came quickly is going to come over a period of time. Now, we're not talking about the work of redemption, what Messiah did upon that cross, but we're talking about now we have this kingdom expression, Zion, God returning to establish his kingdom, and it's going to take a period of time before the children of Israel are ready. So it says, for not with haste, not hurriedly, they will go forth. Why? Well, it says, and not like a, a fleeing that they shall go. So it's not with haste. It's not as though they are fleeing from the enemy. The enemy is not going to be a source of fear when Israel experiences that final redemption. Why? God's going to destroy the enemy. That's why. He is going to lead them, and he's going to lead them confidently. They don't have to run away in fear. They don't have to hurriedly get away from those who, who enslave them. The enemy is going to be no more. This is the intent of verse Verse 12, he says, For the Lord goes before you. Now, this past Motzi Shabbat, I was teaching in our study center here in Israel, and we came across something that, that is so important when you look at the Hebrew text. Usually, we find the Hebrew verb predominantly either in the past or the future. Now, Christian scholars will call the past and the future by different names. They will call it by the perfect and imperfect, but realize something. I speak a lot when I'm teaching from the New Covenant out of the Greek text. I speak about the perfect and imperfect, but there's a difference in the meaning of these terms. When we're using Greek grammar and speaking about the perfect and imperfect, it means something totally different than the Hebrew perfect and imperfect. Totally different uh, message, meaning grammatical implications. So to just keep it simple, you can think of the perfect as the simple past in Hebrew, and the imperfect is simply the future. And what's rare in the Hebrew language is the present tense. In fact, Christian scholars say there is no present. They call it a, a participle. Well, that's not entirely accurate, but we'll put that away because it's not the definitions, the terms that we use that's important. What's important is recognizing the significance, and in this there's agreement. 
because when, as Christian scholars say, a participle is used, or as, as Hebrew scholars, rabbinical ones and such from, from the perspective of Judaism says the present tense is used. What's important is not what you call it, a participle or the present tense. What's important is you recognize it and know whenever that form appears, it, it emphasizes something. And notice what it says. It says at the end of verse 12, for the Lord goes, holech, not halach, not yelech, but holech. It gives a significance to this. For the Lord goes before you and, and many Bibles will say, and a rear guard. Now, it doesn't say that. It's from the term la'asof. La'asof means to gather up. This is in a form which means the one who gathers up, the gathering. So it says, God goes before you and he's going to gather you all up. Now, it does mean that he's in the front and he's also in the back. But the term rear guard isn't there. It's a term, me'asifchem, that he is going to gather you up. Who's going to do that? The God of Israel, the God of Israel. Understand that this term Israel is so important. Don't ever substitute something that is an offense to God, and that is the term Palestine. Now, does that mean that those who recognize themselves as that term, the Palestinians, they ought not. This is not the proper term. It is not a good term. But nevertheless, God loves them if. He loves them regardless, but they won't receive his love unless they enter into a covenant. There are those who the world call Palestinians that are believers. Praise God for that. They are our brothers and our sisters. We need to love them. But if they are so-called brothers, but they are against the nation of Israel, then they're false brothers. They don't know truth. They're not walking in obedience to the word of God. Let's move on to our last section. Look, if you would, to verse 13. Here again, clearly a messianic prophecy. Behold, behold my servant. Now, my servant, we're speaking of here, Messiah. Why? My servant, he. See, usually, if it's referring to Israel, the feminine will be used, but it says, behold my servant, he will be wise. This is in the Hithil, he will bring prosperity his wisdom will have a good outcome and he will be exalted and lifted up and very very high so listen to what it says about messiah here he is going to behave wisely and that's going to be seen in the results what he brings about the outcome he is that exalted servant that one who's lifted up that one who is very high verse 14 just as now we see a difference when god speaks of messiah in this passage he uses and this is not surprising to us he uses the third person singular the he meaning him construction because he is male messiah yeshua a man the man of god the son of god masculine 
But this is what we see concerning Messiah. We see him in the third person, but in verse 14 it says, just as they were astonished at you, who's they? The many. Now, many people, what's interesting is that if you look at the translations, most of the translations, they do something. They add in order to clarify, they put it in italicize, my people. And, and that is the right understanding. What's sad is this, when you look at a lot of the commentators in regard to this passage, they will see that, that they will say that they were astonished at Messiah. No. What it says here is this, just as the many, who's the many? The nations. They were astonished at you. Who's the you? Who God is speaking to. Whom he's speaking about is Messiah. Who he's speaking to is Israel. And what happened to Israel? Israel, remember, exile. All the suffering, all the persecution, all the, the difficult trouble. And in the last days, Jacob's trouble that they're going to go through. Now, what this is doing is showing the relationship between Israel and Messiah. There's a similar connection between them. Both suffer. So it says, just as many were astonished, amazed concerning you, just like they were amazed at all the suffering that Israel endured, but Israel was not defeated. Israel came back to the land. Israel became once more a nation. And therefore, he says, thus, in the same way, thus, the man, his appearance, who's the man? Third person singular. Him, meaning Messiah. Thus, the appearance of a man was marred. That means it was obscured. Why? It's speaking about the suffering of Messiah. We remember Pontius Pilate had him flogged so severely that he came out and he had to say why he was on the, the throne, the judgment seat. This is the man. Because they couldn't recognize him, recognize him because he was so beaten so badly. So it says, just as they were astonished, the many were astonished at you. Thus, his appearance, the appearance of a man is going to be marred, meaning he's not even going to represent a man. And his description, more than a son of man, meaning a human being. So he's going to be marred his appearance and his description more than any man, more than any human being, meaning how great Messiah is going to suffer. So if your theology doesn't have a suffering Messiah in it, it's unbiblical. This is what this passage is saying, and next week we're going to be in Isaiah 53 that speaks clearly about the suffering of Yeshua. Now we're ready for, for verse, verse 15 our last verse where it says thus he will sprinkle many nations now this sprinkling this is the same word that's used in the Torah in example the book of Exodus the book of Leviticus when it's sprinkled and what happens this sprinkling is for the purpose of purification so Messiah is going to suffer and that suffering the reality what he did 
is going to be made available. It's going to be sprinkled just like the children of Israel was sprinkled with blood. And that was for the blood of their purification, changing them. And what do we know? Sprinkling blood on something prepares it for service. And this is what it's saying. For he will sprinkle many nations. And concerning him, this is Messiah, concerning him, the kings will close their mouth. This all goes back up to where we begin that Messiah is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. His authority is over all the mountains, all other authorities. So he is going to do the work of redemption. He is going to offer it and all other sources of authority, they're going to be silent. Their mouths are going to be closed because he rules. And then it says, last part of verse 15, that last part is also found in the book of Romans chapter 15. Paul uses that to say of his desire to go and preach the gospel on, on new ground in new places. And what does this speak to? Well, let's just read it. It says, Kia share lo suparlahem. For what was not told to them? The Gentiles. They weren't told. They didn't have the Bible. They weren't recipients of the Torah. Israel was supposed to share it with them, but, but it didn't happen to a great extent. But nevertheless, those who were not told, they saw. They perceived this message. And it says, and those who did not hear, they weren't listening. They didn't have it told to them. But nevertheless, what did they do? It says, hit bonanu, which means they they heard it and they paid attention. They gave great attention. They scrutinized this message. Those, they weren't told it by Israel and it was not heard by them, but nevertheless, they saw and they were able to respond with clarity. And this is God's wonderful plan to take his message, that salvation message, that good news of the gospel, and even though it was given first to Israel, it also went broad to the ends of the earth. That's what the scripture says, this message, so that the Gentiles also could respond to it. And this is the good news concerning Messiah, a wonderful second half of chapter 52. Well, I'll close with that until next week when we begin that well-known passage, Isaiah 53. Until then, shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, May the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel. <music>